0: Well, good morning, brothers, sisters, and friends. It's good to see you all as you've endured the torrential downpours once again, right? It's been like three weeks in a row now, and it has been raining on the Lord's Day, and yet we still gather because this is what we do, this is what God has called us to do. As we continue this morning, we're going to continue in a short detour through uh, in, in Isaiah, this morning from Exodus for the Advent season. Right? Last year we began a, a short series on the Advent uh, during this time, and we, we took a real focused look on the Gospel of Luke, where we looked at the Nativity and Mary and all of that goodness. And this year we have zoomed back into a salvation history to look at what the Lord has told us from centuries before of how we are to know and to look forward to the coming Messiah. And so when we look at Advent, right, Advent means coming. It's a particular word that we use in describing the first coming of Christ. So we would call this the the Advent season, right? He was the along weighted Messiah, and so that's why we've looked at Isaiah because Isaiah really points that forward of being a Messiah that is coming. And so we also we believe and know that the first Advent is not only true and correct, but also as the church of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, we are looking forward and we are to be living our lives daily in anticipation and preparing for the second advent of our Savior, the Son of God, as he comes again. In Isaiah, this Christmas season, I would like for you to see the glory of the gospel that has been prophesied in the Old Testament in the mystery of God becoming man. And last week we focused in on Isaiah chapter 7, and I hope that from there I was able to accomplish and giving you the apologetic necessary for the doctrine of the virgin conception. If you missed that, go back and and listen to that. It actually would be real helpful for today's message as well. But now we are going to turn just a few chapters forward to Isaiah chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll begin reading in verse 1 in just a moment. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the, (coughs) (coughs) the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in later time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land, deep darkness, a land of deep darkness, on them has shone light. You have multiplied nations. You have increased its joys. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of for his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle to molt, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned, as for fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Unlike last week, this passage sounds a whole lot more like Christmas, doesn't it? It's not quoted necessarily in any of the gospel accounts, such as Isaiah 7.14 was. wasn't uh, recorded specifically or quoted in the gospels, but there are some similarities to some of the, the truths and the ideas of what we understand of the coming of the Messiah from John chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 1 and 2. This is a messianic passage first and foremost, with a Christmas flair to it. Unmistakably, this is about God becoming man, born as a son, as a child, just as Isaiah seven fourteen tells us the kind of birth that he will have—a virgin conception. You might remember from last week we talked about and just in the context so far in Isaiah that Isaiah 1 through 5 are pretty much five chapters dealing with the utter sinfulness and the wickedness of Israel and Judah and why God is going to come and bring judgment upon his people. He pronounces their sin and and their judgment that's about to come because they are not repenting of their sin. And overall, in the coming of God's prophet to his people is a sign unto them that this is a really bad situation that is about to get a whole lot worse. And then Isaiah chapter 6 comes, right? And it's the call that the Lord puts upon the man Isaiah. And we get that spectacular vision of, of, of the throne room of God and the call upon Isaiah. And that powerful passage later, right, in verse In verse 8, when the Lord asks in the throne room of God before all the angels who are exclaiming, holy, 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 the Lord God says, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And there is Isaiah who has been undone because of his sin and yet has been burned by the holiness of God. He, He volunteers, here am I, send me. And now at this point, we might expect that this, at this juncture, right, this powerful ministry is about to begin. God's people are in sin, and God calls his man, miraculously calling him, and purifying him, and preparing him. And he stands up to the line and says, I will go. And we expect now wonderful things to take place. For thousands and thousands to, to come to repentance. But that's just not the case. That's not not the case. Even with such a powerful beginning, truth be told, in the eyes of men, the ministry of Isaiah is an absolute failure. He doesn't fill seats, he doesn't build big church buildings. But Isaiah's ministry, as anyone who is called to the ministry of the gospel, is to faithfully preach the word of God as it is. And as Isaiah preaches the word of God, it does not go well for him. It doesn't go well in the eyes of ministry and church growth gurus or anything like that. But as we look at the book of Isaiah, we have to understand that as he preached and proclaimed God's word, it went just as the Lord said it would. And the Lord tells him, here is the purpose of your ministry, Isaiah. This is what you can put on your website as being the purpose of your ministry. They will hear, but they won't understand. And guess what? They're not even going to care about it. They're going to hear you, they're not going to understand, and they're not going to care. They will become, listen, you can even look at the verses, six, uh, chapter 6, 9 through 10. They will become bored of the word of God. It says very much that their ears will become dull to the word of God. And why? Because their hearts are hard. And God is using the preaching of his word to continue their own blindness. And basically his ministry was to preach the word of God so that it pushes people's people away. And that it hardens their hearts even more. So why would God call Isaiah to this kind of ministry? And the very simple answer is to go back to the first five chapters... The sin of the nation is horrific. Bad doesn't even come close to exclaiming of it. Their rebellion is off the charts. They are people without understanding, it says. They are laden with iniquity. The offspring of evildoers, they are corrupt. They deal corruptly. The land was filled with wickedness and idolatry. They had forsaken the Lord. They have forsaken his word. And the Lord is going to bring about righteous judgment upon his people. We read that in chapter 7. We read that in chapter 8. And in chapter 7, we get that example of the wicked king. Right, here's just a piece of the wickedness. Here's, Here's Ahaz. The king of Judah, right? Supposed to be of the house of David. He worships idols. He sacrifices his own sons to the idols. And even in this particular geopolitical time we talked about last week where they are under siege and invasion from, Isra- from from their own brothers, from Israel, and then from Syria. What does he do? He doesn't turn to the Lord for help. He turns to Assyria for an alliance. He turns to Assyria. Kings were not to have alliances with pagan nations. Pagan nations would draw them into sin and further idolatry. So the Lord sends Isaiah. Here's Isaiah raised up. Called to this particular ministry. Is called to go to Ahaz to warn him. And then God gives him the sign. We see that in verse 14. We talked about that last week. And the sign is was because Isaiah, or Ahaz would only trust in himself. And so chapter 7, the sign of the Lord that he's sending to his people would be conceived, this baby. And it would be used to show that he is with his people. And then we move into chapter 8, where we see the conquering of the Assyrians of Isaiah. And this particular prophecy comes true in chapter 8. And telling us that things are far worse than they ever could have thought of and here's the backdrop then again the backdrop of what we just read in chapter 9 this massive moral sinful wicked rebellious crisis of sin and disobedience and wicked leaders and the coming judgment of god this is the backdrop of Isaiah chapter 9. You know, we, we don't live in any particular special time. There's some truth in the say that we certainly are living in the last days. The church has from Pentecost has always been living in the last days and we live in anticipation of the second covenant or the second advent. We don't live in a particular time. Our time is not that much different than what we have just read in understanding the context of Isaiah leading up to chapter 9. Our time is not much different. Our country, though we are not a covenant people of God as Israel was, there are still similarities, that we are still in rebellion. We're still in sin and wickedness. And idolatry and evil and unbelief is still pervasive everywhere, even in our own midst. And for people of God, for the people of God now living in this fallen world, it can be hard to grasp and fathom this fallenness and this wickedness that seems to surround us. And sometimes we even detach ourselves so far from it, we forget that that was once us. Now, we were once there. And we sort of read that in chapter 8 about this great distress, this great uh, uh, hunger and gloom and anger that's all around them, and we see that within our own world. Distress and gloom and hunger and anger all around. I know we can, historically, we can look back further, but just... Dwell just for just a second in your own mind the the last three years in our world and in our country of how crazy and upside down and chaotic and distressing at times that it has been and continues to be. We don't need to recount all of these things. We certainly don't have time and don't want to. We have greater things to think about. But it certainly has become insane ...and out of control. And certainly I can see the similarities of today... ...with the kind of similarities we see in the context of Isaiah. And here we are now at the end of 2023. We are on the verge of 2024. If Christ tarries... ...then I am no prophet. I can't tell you how it's going to be and what's going to happen... But just looking at the signs of some sense of things that's happening 2024 is shaping up to be another doozy of a year. And it's going to be filled with all kinds of turmoil. There are similarities to then and similarities to now. But the similarities mostly where the thread and the commonality between then and now is still sin. But here we are, it's December. And as Christians, we by God's providence, we are gathered today today this, this Lord's day, because we believe the Word of God. And we know that this world, this culture, In this world of sin, brothers and sisters, just by our very gathering today tells us that although this world is in in sin and rebellion, that this world in its sin and in its rebellion is not it. Just our very gathering on the Lord's Day is a testimony of that. And being Christmas time, that means so much more to us. It should mean so much more to us than just, Our gatherings and family traditions and decorations and parties and presents and such. But it points us to so much more. Not only to the salvation that we needed in the coming of our Savior that was born into this fallen world. But to the the salvation that is to come in the second advent of our Savior. And I think this morning, our text, even though it is placed in this gloom in despair, in a very angry and vile world, I think that this text should be a massive encouragement to us this morning as Christians. Because Christmas is showing us that life in the world that we now know it as it is, is not it. It's husks and ashes. And it's just a mere shadow We have hope not in people. We do not have hope in governments that are going to get better or change. But our hope is like that of the remnant of Israel had in that day that there is a Messiah. And we know that that Messiah has come and yet he is coming again. Darkness is here, but brothers and sisters, the light has come. Gloom you may experience now, and pain and anguish you may know now, but joy has come, and that joy is ever increasing. The burden of sin is heavy, but it has been broken. And why? Because for unto us a child has been born, a son is given. One of my favorite Christmas carols, and I generally always save it for Christmas Eve, is O Holy Night. I like the progression of the song, the, of the carol, telling the story that culminates in the adoration and worship of Jesus Christ, the divine. It's a classic. Some of the greatest singers in all of the world have sung that song. And there are three lines in that song that I believe sum up for us in Isaiah chapter 9 fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that first line is, as we sing, the stars are brightly shining. And in that line, it's describing the the night when Christ was born, right? Signifying to us the, the kind of night it was, but also telling us of the light that was born into the world. And we see that in these first verses. You look back to verse 1. It's a continuation of chapter 8 that we already read this morning because the Lord is moving us in chapter 8 from the darkness and gloom and distress from chapter 8, 22 to to look forward to the light and the hope of the the world, the hope of this this new time that that is coming when the child is born meaning this life and this world of sin and darkness, as I've already said, is not it. It says to us that the land of Zebulun and Naphtali and, and their lands of contempt, their lands of contempt because why? Because they were the northern parts of Judah. They're also known as Galilee and as being the northern parts of, of, of Judah, this particular area, they were kind of the buffer between them and the foreign, the foreign nations and as they were uh, as the nation was being attacked or influenced or whatever it may be through foreign and foreign and foreign invaders, Galilee was inevitably the area that was always invaded first. They were always attacked first. There was all, they were always humbled. And you can see the correlation probably between when Israel and Syria was attacking uh, Judah, uh, once again, Galilee, was probably the region that was attacked and, fa- and had the worst casualties and the worst amount of hostages that were, that were taken. They were also the most influenced, even in times of peace, they were the most influenced by other cultures and rebellions, or, or excuse me, religions. And so it's, it was a very difficult place to live in context to the rest of the nation. And so in summary, what this verse is telling us is that the least likely area of Israel that should receive this child will be the one that will first see this coming light. That the Lord was going to take their despair, the despair that Galilee understood very closely, and shine his light. Again, we we talk a lot about... Matthew and how Matthew makes the link and the connection back to Isaiah. And he does the same thing with this particular verse in Matthew chapter 4. He says, look back and see. Here's Jesus. Who is, begins his ministry where? In Galilee. Just as Isaiah had said. And we get to verse 2, and it speaks of the encouragement, all of those who walked in darkness now have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has shone light. And here's Isaiah using that great metaphor, that great biblical metaphor that gives a stark contrast, right, of 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 the darkness and light that exclaims the difference between evil and wickedness to what? to light and goodness and righteousness, the purity that is going to come in their midst. And here we are, the star that is brightly shining. And woven right into the story, right? Woven right into the story, right? In Isaiah 1 through 8 so far that is filled with sin and disobedience and wickedness and those who will not hear, they will be dull of hearing, bored of the word of God, the invasion of foreign nations. The compiling of of sin upon sin is this amazing picture of hope. And it's in that biblical picture that we're familiar with called the light. And this light was what? It was a sign that God has what? That God is going to be faithful. That God is faithful to his people. A new day of hope and light will come. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? God's word is the lamp unto my feet, feet and a light unto my path. And who is Jesus? And John chapter 1 is the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him. Not anything that was made. In him was life and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about what? The light. That all might believe through him. He was not the light, I mean, John was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The light has come. And the light of the world is Jesus Christ, who as we see in John chapter 1, is the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. However much we may feel hopeless in this world. And maybe it feels like we're the Galileans, right? We're in the northern part and all we do is we see and we have to endure what we see is around us is evil. and We feel the distress. Those who have dwelt in darkness. Brothers and sisters, we have dwelt in darkness. you have dwelt in darkness. Before you were in Christ, before grace, the grace of God called you and saved you, you dwelt in darkness and he gave you light. And now we are a people who dwell in darkness. We see darkness all around you. But what is it? We have seen the light. And this is why the the Christmas story, and for that matter, Christmas itself is filled with so many, so many lights. We decorate our homes with light. We put lights in the inside. We put lights on the outside. And why do we do that? Yes, decorations and it looks cool and pretty, but we do it so that when we turn off the lights, we're kind of wowed by it. You turn off the lights in your house and you look at your tree, whether it's a the white, white tree, or the, the, co- the colorful tr- lights like we like to do, and you're, you're wound by it. Or you go outside when it's dark, and what do you see? You see the light. We do all of that so that we can turn the lights off, or go outside in the darkness, and why? Because we are a people who want to see the light. We want the light. Nobody wants Darkness. But we dwell in darkness. The light has come. And the light has come to set us free. To be hopeful and joyful, not in small twinkling lights on a house or a tree. But to be hopeful in the light of the world. The word of God, the son of God, Jesus Christ. He has come. Brothers and sisters, and though you may dwell in darkness around you. You still do not exist in darkness. Jesus has ascended into heaven. And I know that there is still so much gloom and so much despair around us. But he has not left you in the dark. This little light of mine, I will let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. And where does that little song come from? Because Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And we are the lights of the world now, vicariously through Christ... ...because of the word of God and because of his Holy Spirit. And so that no matter how dark things may be... ...how dark things may get, the stars are still brightly shining. And that brings us to the second line of O Holy Night in his name oppression shall cease and i really like this line because right before that we sing "Chain shall he break for the slave is our brother and many like to take that the social justice warriors and they want to use that and manipulate that to think about social justice things but this song is leaning hard on uh, luke chapter four when Jesus goes into the synagogue of the, on the Sabbath and he reads from the scroll, from where? From Isaiah, from Isaiah 61. And he says, the Spirit has, done, has anointed him to proclaim the good news to the poor, the, the liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, and liberty to the oppressed. And he says, in sight of everybody there, he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And essentially what we see in these next verses... In Isaiah 9 is that they are telling us this very thing about, this, about the Messiah. The mission of the Messiah through his righteousness is to increase the joy of his people and also simultaneously defeat those that oppress us and the things that oppress us. Look at verse three. It's a consist. It's consistent with the metaphor of the light coming into the darkness, right? You see how the mood changes, right? When the light comes, the mood changes. When the light comes, right? The oppression uh, will shall cease when they receive the light. It says the you is the Lord, right? He is the one that is spreading the light and he's increasing the light more and more and more that people may delight in what in the light, right? That they may have joy. We see this very very example in the Gospels in the very beginning at the birth of Christ. To To the least of these, the light of God came. Right? To the least of these, the light was shown, the shepherds heard, the angels sing, the light, the stars were shining, the shepherds were seeing the light of the angels and they were exclaiming and they were telling of the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ and they went and worshiped. And here the the remnant is small in Isaiah, there's not many that are faithful, but through Christ, the coming of this Messiah, the remnant is small, but through the coming of the Messiah, the joy of his people and the multitude of his people shall increase evermore, to all the way. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see the line that pulls all the way through from the Old Testament to the New Testament, all the way to the fulfillment of that in Revelation chapter 7. That's when John sees. He sees it and he says, Behold that a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. And with a loud voice they are saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what is it? The thread that is pulled through, the increasing of joy and the rejoicing culminates in the nations rejoicing in the light that came as the sun. Our joy, brothers and sisters, is not small. And as you see here, it's compared to what? It's compared to the joy of those who work the harvest. We, can, we may not work harvests, but, but have you ever received a bonus or a big bonus that you weren't expecting? Receiving this, this bonus and you're excited. You're like, wow, praise God. That's a good day. Or it's like the, the, the soldier dividing a spoil. Or, or we can compare it to the team that wins the Super Bowl. And they're in the locker room and they're rejoicing, not only in the win, but the relief that it's over. We won. The excitement and the relief. And this worship, this joy, it taps, it taps into something that is innately ingrained with us. Not only in those who desire to live in the light and want the light, but it taps into something that we are made to rejoice. That we're meant to have joy, not in small foolish things that pass like sports and bonuses. But we were made to rejoice in things that are ultimate. That are far beyond and more glorious than any of the things of this world. When we get to verse 4. We get another illustration. It's an illustration of a fighter, a warrior. Someone like Gideon. I think that's what he has in mind here. Someone like Gideon from Judges chapter 6 through 8. Who breaks the powers of the oppressors. Particularly Midian. You see it there listed in the text. And what does it do? He breaks the yoke. He breaks the staff and the rod of the enemy. And these were not just symbols, but they were tools that the enemy uses. These are tools of oppression, yokes that are put on their shoulders and staffs that are, that are uh, used to put on them as burdens and rods of the enemy to beat people and to force them into submission, to abuse them, to dominate them. And I see here in this passage here what our Savior, what our Lord God does as our As this warrior of this fighter that he comes to break oppression. That that is his mission, to take upon himself our burdens. The staff of sin that presses down on our shoulders in the rod of our oppressors. I see in this verse a, a telling in a sense of the gospel. Of the real oppression and burden that we have is not Assyria, it's not Syria or Ephraim or anything else of this world, but what is of us the the biggest thing that is our oppressor is the yoke and bond to slavery, to sin. Jesus did not come to crush people, but to crush what was crushing us, and that was sin. Brothers and sisters, the increase of our joy And our rejoicing is not predicated on us or how things are going on in this world. But the increase of our joy in our rejoicing is on Christ, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our our Savior. The light that has broken into our darkness. And as verse 5 says, that not only will he be our liberator from our oppressor, but he will put a final end to the conflict itself. Everything that is evil in this world and all the mechanisms of evil and tyranny of darkness and oppression will be burned as fuel in the fires of God's grace. The whisper in this language here we see in this text, the passive voice tells us that this victory is not by your will, It's not by your strength. It's not by your talents or abilities or the coalitions that you can build or committees that you can put together or even the candidates that we can put forth. But it happens when, but it has happened and started when the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt in darkness when he stepped onto the battlefield that day conceived in the virgin and born in the flesh. On that day, the war was over. And even though we wait for the final day, all we do until then is see the increase of our joy in rejoicing. And that's why we sing, in his name, all oppression shall cease. And lastly, as the song, O Holy Night, hits its crescendo... All the hearers are compelled to do what? Fall on your knees. And why? Because verses 6 and 7 hit as a crescendo in this passage. And verse 6 gives us that all familiar passage we hear and we see throughout this season. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And here is the sign, right? Here's the link back to the sign from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The child that was born and given to us. And this is a work of God's gracious giving. There's there's no coincidence here between the two. He will be born like us, but he will not be like any of us. All All that we need, all that has terrorized us all that has brought us into despair and gloom, the answer is right here. Right here in the the child that will be given to us. Given here. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And now we're starting to see the role of this child As the light that dispels the darkness, what does he do? He takes head of the government. All the big shots of power, all the tyrants and dictators and kings and presidents and politicians are going to be defeated by the coming of this child. And in context, he's, he's being put against King Ahaz. Right? Here's the king of this government of Judah. A smart guy, a capable guy, a a cunning guy, but but also he's been an absolute disaster for Judah. He's wicked, he's disobedient to the word of God. He's representative of all the worldly leaders in all the history of the world. He's put up as the example. And in stark contrast comes this child that we know is the son of God. He will have the name Jesus and he will take upon himself, the government will be upon his shoulder. Because he is the king. Brothers and sisters, here is the kind of king he is going to be. The kind of king that can bear the government upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Not only does this speak of the the character of Christ, of Jesus, right? As being being wonderful, like he's a wonderful person. But in himself, what this is speaking to even more is the wonder of his counsel. In the Hebrew, this this word is the, the closest that you can get to being the word of a miracle or of a supernatural that you can, right? It's as close as you can get. So in his person and in his work, as he's taking upon himself the government upon his shoulders, what is it? He is a wonder in his counsel. He is a wonder in his counsel. Jeremiah 23, 5 hooks on to this when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, right? Other than the branch that comes to the house of David, such as Ahaz, but a righteous branch. And he will what? Reign as a king. And what will he do? He will deal wisely. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. There's the kind of king that we need. There's the kind of king that is, born, that is being given. You read the Gospels and we, we wonder about Christ and some of the things he says, in a sense, we're kind of astonished by what he says, in confounding the wisest and the smartest people of their time. He perplexed them. I mean, think about the time when he's asked about, do you tithe? Aren't you given to Caesar? I mean, he's, yeah, surrender unto Caesar's. What's the Caesar's? Caesar's his face is on it. Give it to him. And they were perplexed by it. They were in wonder by it. He is the smartest and the wisest of all time. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, Paul calls Jesus the wisdom of God. In Colossians chapter 2, he is our salvation in Christ is hidden, the treasures of all wisdom and knowledge. And in stark contrast again to Ahaz, as we talked about last week, he ignores wisdom. He ignores God's word. He rejects God's word. And brothers and sisters, just like we see today and throughout history, leaders, so-called leaders and politicians, they reject the truth of God's word. They reject wise Counsel, but the church of God, our king, in which we follow, in which we submit to, who is our God and our king, and the child that has been given unto us, he is wonderful. Counselor. And his counsel we can always follow and trust. He is also mighty God. Two massive truths I want you to see here. Number one, he is mighty God, almighty, a warrior to defeat our enemy and our oppressor. We needed a mighty warrior to bear the weight of the world and of our sins for his people, for the government to be on his shoulders. Jesus was not weak, he was not helpless, nor was he frail, but he is the manliest man to ever walk this earth. And second, he is God. He is not like mighty God. But he is mighty God. No other person has ever been given God's name. The Lord is never called Moses or Abraham or David or Isaiah or Jeremiah. But Jesus is called the Christ, mighty God. He will be called everlasting Father. Now this is not to confuse the Son with the Father in such a way that God only exists in one distinct mode at a time. No, what he is saying in this name is it's saying that his rule and authority and his love as a Father is attributed, to, is attributed to him. An example here is kings of old. Again, back to Ahaz, kings of old were often called fathers to their people because they were not only to lead their people, but they were to care for them as a benevolent father. That didn't happen. Ahaz, again, is the example. He wasn't doing that, and of course we have that in our world today of no benevolent leaders but only tyrants who wield power for their own gain and their own benefit to accumulate not only more power for themselves but also wealth for themselves, and it all comes at the expense of the governed. But Christian, your submission is not to a tyrant. Your submission is to an everlasting, eternal father who is good, who is holy. And he has expressed and shown his character of being a father to us and how he has loved us now and forever. And lastly, he shall be called the prince of peace. And again, put that in contrast with Ahaz, with anything but the time of peace, only war. And loss, or, or put it in comparison to leaders even today who serve only the military-industrial complex to profit from war rather than promoting peace. And the prophet Micah, he tapped into this idea of being the warrior God who, who makes war for us in order to make peace. Remember that the angels exclaimed that night, To the shepherds in chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. The peace right now is not universal. But the peace now are only in those who are in the sun. Those in whom the light has shone. Jesus has brought peace to you with God because he has given us his peace. And we can stop right here, brothers and sisters, and we can exclaim one day that there will be peace that will reign universally. But in this peaceless world now, in this very angry, raging world, What is the message that you have to carry to it? You have the message of the Prince of Peace. You have the message of the the gospel. That those who have been in gloom and dwelt in darkness because of their own sin and the mess that they have created in their own lives... The rebellion against this holy God who have dwelt in darkness. You come with this message of light and peace. The peace that you now experience in in yourself. You have that message you bring to to them. To those who have dwelt in darkness has shown a great light. And again, we know that the peace will come eventually, finally. Finally. And oh, how we're longing for that day. But know this, that peace, peace is not something that you can just achieve by treaty. Peace comes through unconditional surrender by the victory of the cross. And that's it. And that child is given who is the king and who is God, who is sent to save us from all of our failures and to bring us into his righteousness and to give us peace. Verse 7, the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. You hear that? The increase of his government. I think again Matthew taps into the idea, the whole theme of the coming of the kingdom of God where his kingship shall reign and his government will reign forever and ever. And for those in whom he has peace, there will be peace to no end. And think about what that means, peace to no end, no more sin. No more weakness of the flesh, no more temptation. No more prayers of confession, brother. Brother. Only prayers of adoration and thanksgiving. Because there will be peace, no end. And why? Because of Christ. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Again, and in stark contrast to the governments of this world in their absolute failure to us all the time. There is a Davidic king who will reign forever and ever. And he will establish it and he will uphold it. With real justice, the justice of his righteousness, the righteousness of God from now and forevermore, for all eternity. I mean, if you're going to get loud about something, be loud about that. His kingdom, his government has come. And amongst us, brothers and sisters, it is expanding forever and ever. And there will be people, as we've read from Revelation chapter 7, there will be people that will be drawn in ever more and more. Eternal justice and righteousness forevermore. That is the time that is coming. But the great question now is, In light of this point in the song, will you come and will you fall? Will you fall before him in faith or will it just be another great Christmas carol that is sung by the the wonders of the greatest singers of the world and you'll uh, you'll be more amazed by how high of the note the tenor can sing or the highest note that the soprano can sing rather than the light of the glory of God revealed in the Son of God, this child that came to humble the whole world and has given grace. Will you fall before him in faith? Will you accept him in the weakness? So that you will be there to enjoy his triumph and the increasing and intensifying forever joy. And I love the way that this passage closes. In a sense, it should be at the beginning. Maybe we should read it in context of that. The zeal of the Lord will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's sovereign plan. It is his will and it is his absolute desire for all of this to be accomplished. Brothers and sisters, we have seen the, far, the partial fulfillment of this, haven't we, in Christ? The coming of His Son in the first advent and then the cross. And we believe that He's coming again. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Does that encourage you this morning? Maybe in a time of coldness in your heart. From weariness, from the condition of this world of despair and gloom. It would be a shame to go all the way through this Christmas season and only delight in just traditions and sentimentality of the season and to completely miss what the Lord has done and what the Lord is doing. Amen. Believe in Him. This world and what we see happening around us, this is not it. Sin Death, wickedness is only temporary, and soon it will pass away. Do you know about the gloom? Do you know about the despair? Do you know about the anguish? Oh, beloved church, the people who once walked in darkness, you have seen a great light. We live in a land of deep darkness. We dwell in a land of deep darkness. But on you has shone a light. And joy has increased. Your joy has increased because of grace. The church is being built on the firm foundation of Christ that all the nations may come to him and rejoice in the sovereign Savior of the universe. And upon that Savior, he did what? He took our burden. He took our cross. He became our curse. He became the curse. And victoriously, he broke the oppressor of our dictator of sin. And one day, all that terrorizes us will be crushed forever and ever. And why? Because for unto us a child is born. To us the son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and his kingdom and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And all of God's people say, and amen.